welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Human beings have been traveling to outer space since the 1960s. Visiting space used to be reserved only for a small number of highly trained astronauts, but in recent years, space travel has expanded and it is becoming more accessible to a wider range of people. In fact, we now have several private companies that are working to expand space tourism, which will allow people to travel and maybe even live outside of Earth's atmosphere for a period of time. This raises a lot of interesting questions about how we can make life in outer space compatible with human needs, and that includes our sexual and intimate needs. However, space organizations like NASA aren't talking about sex in space, and they say they aren't studying it either. But if we're going to build spacefaring societies, this is something we have to understand because sex in space is inevitable. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Why do we need to study sex in space? What are the potential benefits and risks? And how can we overcome the challenges? I am joined by Simon Dubay, a PhD candidate in psychology specializing in human sexuality, sex tech, and aerobotics, which is the study of human-machine erotic interaction and co-evolution. His work also explores space sexology and how we can integrate sex research into space programs. Simon's work focuses on bringing sex to the final frontiers. We're going to start by talking about sex in space, and later in the program, we'll talk about sex with robots. I am so excited for this conversation because these are topics that we definitely have not yet covered on this podcast, so let's dive right in. Hi, Simon, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Now, before we dive into your fascinating research on sex in space and sex with robots, can you please tell us a little bit about your professional journey? So specifically, what drew you to the field of psychology and how did you get into sex research in general? Yeah, that's a long story. But uh, a couple of years ago, as I was approaching the end of uh, my undergrad, I was thinking, all right, I want to go into grad school. I want to do a PhD. Ideally, I'd like to do it in something related to social neuroscience and how the brain works and in interaction with others. And I discover that it was possible to address some of these questions in connection to human sexuality here in Montreal at Concordia University. So I reached out to uh, the professor uh, there, Dr. Jim Faust, who you had a couple of weeks ago, I think on the show as well. And we began discussing about potential projects related to the development of sexual preferences, especially when it comes to the development of sexual uh, preference related to BDSM practices. And so I started my master's at this stage to see if uh, it was something I was uh, interested in, looking into launch a couple of studies related to that. And as I was progressing in, in, in that reflection and journey, I there was so much going on with the emergence of new technology that I became acutely aware that maybe one of the aspects that was most influencing the development of or future development of our eroticism, intimacy, and sexuality was obviously uh, new technology. So I, I began to, to read on, on sex robots, starting with Dr. Levy's book on intimate relationship with machines, and then got into robot sex from John Donaher and Neil McArthur. And really realize uh, that, first of all, there was not a lot of research out there and that our laboratory at Concordia was ideally positioned to end, start answering some of these questions and really get some of the data about why people want to have sex and intimate relationships with machines and what are some of the factors that may influence this, dishes, this decision and how it could subsequently influence uh, people's development of sexual preferences, but overall their intimate and sexual lives. So uh, this started as a side project. <laughs> which, to say the least, quickly gained traction and became 95% of uh, my time. It was obvious that I could not continue that way, having a side project that was taking uh, so much of my time. And I was actually more interested in, in terms of, at this stage, what were the avenues and research possibilities and the need. The need, obviously, is there, again, for research on BDSM communities, but the technology that is emerging is influencing every aspect of our relationships. So there was a high demand also for that and a high interest on my part. So I, at one point, um, 
three or four years ago, I decided, look, uh, yeah, and I need to give it 100% of my time. So at this stage, looking at the literature and how the research was conducted at the intersection of sexology and technology, it was evident that at that moment it was really fragmented and also that we needed some form of a new field and a scientific agenda to address all aspects and study human sexuality and the intersection with technology. So with my colleague, Dr. Dave, we realized, look, we need to write a foundational paper to give direction to this emerging body of research as this is influencing our society. So we wrote Foundations of Aerobotics. As we approached submission and putting the final touch on that big theoretical piece, we were thinking about some of the applications that these technology could have for intimate uh, relationship and human sexuality. And we became acutely aware that new sex tech and e-robots, so artificial erotic agents, could probably be used in all kinds of situations to help singles, couples, or people who prefer technologies, or people who might not have easy access to intimacy and sexuality in their daily life. And with everything that was happening in the space sector, it became also evident that these technology could potentially have uh, some applications to improve the intimate and sexual health of astronauts or people living in space or remote and isolated, confined environments for extended periods of time. So one morning, realizing that I woke up and I said to myself, I, I need to write an op-ed. I need to write like a position piece, proposing that idea, putting it out there because I might not have that much time <laughs> to develop it further, but maybe someone else will take the ball and kind of think about it as we did, but on more the sex tech side. So we wrote a piece for The Conversation, Idol Sex in Space, Could Technology uh, Meet the Intimate uh, Needs of Astronauts? And <laughs> I got to say, it got a bit, quite a bit of traction. And now it's somewhere over 200,000 hits. And so we left that there. But a couple of months later, we were approached by the company WeVibe, uh, the sex tech uh, company, who said, look, we've read your piece in The Conversation. I think we, it's, it's fascinating. Would you be interested? in elaborating more because we'd be interested in probably producing products that would be tailored or adapted to space context and we'd like to use that and maybe if you could produce an outside report to the company so that we can you can maybe uh, just give more details about what are your views on the use of sex tech in space context so my colleagues and i were thrilled we thought this is a great idea it'll, it'll give us some time to think more deeply about uh, these questions. So we wrote that report. The first part is now out. And as we produce that report on sex tech in space, now we can improve mental health and sexual wellness and these things and why space companies and space organizations were not necessarily dealing with it. We again had an, a moment where we just realized, look, we, we got to take a step back. There's actually no research out there or virtually almost no research on human sexuality or comprehensive research on human sexuality and sexology in space context. We needed to write a piece, a position piece that said, look, many people in the past have said that we need to be studying these, these realities, but to this day, it's not being done properly. It's not being done enough for sure. And here's why this is important. And here's how we, we think we can do it. So we try also to propose a framework and, again, give some directionality to the field so that people can move forward with that. So we wrote the piece called The Case for Space Sexology. Now we, we need to do the work. We need to do the empirical and, again, some theoretical work, but also a priority-based list of experiments that needs to be done by private and uh, public space organizations so that we can move forward and ensure human well-being as we going to space. Well, thank you for sharing that. So you went from kinky sex to sex with robots to looking at sex toys for astronauts. It's a very fascinating trajectory that your career has taken already. So I'm very curious to follow it and see where it goes from here. So as you mentioned, you study sex in the final frontiers, sex in space, sex with robots. And these are topics that, as you mentioned, very few people are researching and not that many people are talking about. And I know from discussing these topics with other people that some of them think that 
this is kind of a trivial thing, or they just think it's humorous, right? And they don't really take it seriously. And we know that NASA and some other space organizations aren't talking about sex in space, let alone studying it. So why do you think there's so much resistance to studying topics like this? And what kind of reactions have you encountered to your own work? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. For the overall reactions that I get to my own work, I, I, I think there's usually three. <laughs> The first one probably is surprise. The second one is definitely laughter. The third one is the most problematic. Sometimes there's some fear, some very strong negative reactions, uh, either fueled by, like I said, fear or taboos or normative, some form of normative view about human sexuality and sometimes also some form of technophobia. When it comes to sex and space, I'd say that the reactions are also often the same, but rapidly be, people become acutely aware that this is, a, this is a problem. It doesn't take as much convincing to argue to people that considering human sexuality as we attempt to settle uh, space and or go for long periods of time in space is an important issue and intimate and sexual needs are important to both astronauts, but future also space tourism and anyone who will inhabit space for extended periods of time. So yeah, I'd say surprise, laughter. Sometimes some people will pray for my sinful soul's redemption, but usually it definitely leads to a very interesting discussion regardless of uh, whether it's a positive or negative reaction. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about sex in space. So as you mentioned, you published this paper called The Case for Space Sexology, and you talk about some of the benefits of sex and masturbation for people who are spending prolonged periods of time in space. Now, space is obviously a very unique environment in a ton of ways, not the least of which is that it necessitates a pretty big degree of social isolation, right? I think when people think about SpaceX, they tend to immediately go toward the lack of gravity. But I think the social isolation aspect is a really important thing to discuss here. So let's talk a little bit about what are the potential benefits of both solo and partnered sexual activity in this very unique space environment. So let's start first there with what are the positive elements? <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to start because usually I receive the question on the other side, like what are the risks, what are the dangers? But you're right, there's a lot of benefits. I mean, let's if we just start about psychophysiological benefits of sexual pleasure, orgasm, this can improve health, and this can improve cardiovascular systems, this can just generate positive states of emotions that will help relax, will help sleep, will help deal with stress. We can also think about simply the fact that enabling these positive aspects of human life on Earth in space context can help people, it can normalize space life, it can make it pleasurable. Space organizations and the military and scientific expedition have known for a long time that astronauts or military personnel or scientific need to have some time to relax, to have fun, sex, and intimate relationships and the dynamics of flirting and social interaction that are healthy and pleasurable and beneficial can can help with that. We also need to be mindful of the fact that if we actually prevent it, it might deter people from engaging in space exploration because some people might see that space organization and space missions are prioritizing the missions and objectives over the well-being of those who are taking part in them. So if we bring it back to a, like a simple example, if I tell you, look, would you be interested in going on a journey to Mars for maybe three years? It's like, oh, maybe a lot of people might be interested in the adventure and aspect. And I, and I tell you afterwards, well, yeah, but you might not be able to masturbate or have sex or like these things or see your partner or have access to your loved ones for an extended period of time. Then you might be, yeah, I like the adventure, but, you know, maybe not that much. So normalizing space life, enabling the uh, psychophysiological benefits of pleasure and orgasm are important first steps, normalizing space life, having fun. And for instance, masturbations are is an important aspect of sexual development. It, regular sexual activity can improve subsequent sexual functioning. Preventing it might deter sexual functioning if we if there is any form of abstinence or celibacy policy, it can create stress as well. So I mean, it, it's it's really two-sided. Like the, the question of enabling and facilitating sex in space is 
can be summarized by saying, look, if we enable it, we are going to reap the benefits of sex that we find on Earth, but also address some of the challenges that have to do with, for instance, deconditioning, social stress, isolation uh, stress, uh, that have to do with the specific context of living in, in space life. But if we try to prevent it, <laughs> then we are going to get all of the other, the flip side, all the problems that have to do with everything that we know on Earth is problematic, but in my opinion, tenfold by the space context. And also, if we all bring it to a simple example, if I tell you not to think about something, and if I try to prevent you from doing something for extended periods of time, I think we're in for trouble if we, uh, we try to do that. So it's a combination of both. It's addressing human sexuality and intimacy in space is about mitigating risks and allowing the benefits, the benefits of sex in spacecraft, space stations, and eventually perhaps settlements. Yeah, and totally agree with everything that you said. There are so many benefits that we can tap into through sex, you know, where sex can be good for our physical health, it can be good for our mental health and well-being, right? We know that on days people have sex, they report more feeling of meaning in life. The next day, they have a better mood, they're more productive at work, right? And so there are all kinds of benefits that we can tap into. And if you remove all of those benefits of sex, and also including the stress-relieving benefits of sex, the fact that orgasms can help people to fall asleep and sleep better, right? You're, you're taking away this very valuable tool that people can use to enhance and improve and maintain their mental health and well-being in this really unique and challenging environment. So I think that presents an important case for why we can't just say, hey, if you're going to space, you have to be abstinent until you come back to Earth, right? Because that's probably not going to work out. Now, just as there are many potential benefits to sex and masturbation in space, of course, there are also potential risks and challenges to overcome, right? So there is the issue of radiation exposure and how that might affect the body. There is the issue of lack of gravity, which, you know, always raises the question for people of, well, where do bodily fluids go when they're expelled from the body during sex when you're in a zero gravity environment? So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what are the potential risks and challenges of sex in space? You know, what are these challenges we need to overcome in order to make that work? Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. I think if you start by thinking of these questions to the level of, Think about all the risks and challenges that have to do with human intimacy and sexuality on Earth, and then multiply that by space context and multiply that by duration. And you get a sense of how complex and challenging it could be to have to enable and facilitate human sexuality in space. So on Earth, for instance, we can think about every challenges that has to do with reproduction, that have to do with dysfunction, sexually transmitted infections. You can We can think about problems that have to do with sexual assault, harassment, interpersonal conflicts, uh, breakups, name it. I mean, all the problems that we have on Earth, then multiply that by the fact that in space, at least for the foreseeable near future, astronauts and space inhabitants and tourists will have to live in relatively small quiet, not very private environments with a restricted group of individuals. So we're talking between four and 30 individuals on the relatively short to midterm. Yeah, some missions will be a week, a few days, maybe a month. For instance, if we think about orbital missions for a few days, uh, three to a week, then to maybe to the moon and the first phases of the Artemis pro program, where it's more going to be around 25, 30 days or a month. But then multiply that also by missions of six months to a year, maybe two to four years if we're talking about Mars. And then beyond that, it, the time factor also becomes uh, very important and yeah, we, we need to be thinking about if we just want to live in space, just let's say establish a permanent settlement where there's a rotation or there's a, a mission of six months uh, to a year, you have, let's say, five to 10 individuals who are in space of different gender and sex and self-identification. Self we need to be thinking about astronauts who also have partners on Earth, the stress that it can represent to live in small groups the psychosocial adaptation that it requires to live in confined, self-sustained uh, and limited environment, where if there's a problem, you have to deal with it 
on the short term with the crew that you have. The, that crew is heavily dependent on one another. There's also different ranks. We, we need to be thinking about everything that could happen if, I mean, someone gets pregnant, if some people fall in love and then break up. We need to be thinking about people who will want to enact their sexuality, either with themselves or their partners. People will be missing their partners that are still on earth for like for a certain amount of time. We find ways to connect them. We find ways to connect people within the crews. We need to be thinking, I mean, about everything that has to do with sexual harassment, assault, uh, and the situation. We've seen problems in the military, in scientific missions. We've seen problems in the space sector years ago with my colleague, Dr. Judith Lapierre. Many cases probably have gone over the years, maybe scoop under the rug, but also recently some allegation with SpaceX and how they deal with cases of sexual harassment. These problems that we also find on Earth become also very important in space context to, to deal with right now to prevent to develop the necessary systems and protocols uh, in place. Because it's easy look to say, look, we'll try to mimic some of the protocols that we're trying to establish on Earth to deal, for instance, with cases of sexual harassment. But in space context, what do you do when your system engineer is the one, like a perpetrator, there's power dynamics in that confined environment, but you depend on one another. It's not like you can necessarily put that person in jail or restrict privacy because you might need their expertise. And then, yeah, the moon is a few days uh, from us. So there's kind of possibilities of trying to uh, give support. But Mars is, I mean, uh, sometimes I said best like six or eight months away, depending on where we are in the year or uh, in time, then living there and establishing a permanent colony will require that we deal with reproduction. And when I say reproduction, I mean, I'm talking about injuries, dysfunction, sexually transmitted and bloodborne infection, but also preparing for the challenges ranging to conception, unintended or intended pregnancies, abortion, birth, uh, miscarriage, and child rearing. Like, I mean, we need to be thinking holistically about what this actually entails. And we need to be dealing also with the fact that living on a settlement or a spacecraft or space station for extended period of time, we have to carefully plan and monitor population level, both its, its diversity, so its composition, but also the resources aspect, like it's very practical aspect that we need to be thinking. Look, if if people like we have a, to have a number of limit of how we reproduce on these settlements, not exceed the resources and keep the environments viable, then the last thing I would multiply this huge problem with that we also face on Earth is that we have to think that some of these issues will also discriminately or disproportionately affect certain groups. Here on Earth, we already know that. I mean, some problems related to human intimacy and sexuality and uh, that have to do with power dynamics and historical context and sociocultural com components disproportionately or discriminately affect I mean, women, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, community members of gender and sexual minorities, individuals with, living with disabilities. And I mean, all the multiple intersections that exist between these different groups. Now, it might not seem like a problem to um, someone who self-identifies as heterosexual and to, to find, to thinking about like, oh, how am I going to find a partner on a colony that has maybe 100,000 individuals? But when you are in, uh, in a community member of maybe a community that doesn't necessarily is represented as much in that sexual diversity or sexual preference or the compatibility of individual in the market of available sexual partners might not be the same for individuals in that specific context. So how do we deal with that? So I'm really trying just to convey that it would take hours to put a list of all the risks and problems that it could arise in the context of trying to facilitate or enable human sexuality, intimacy in space context. But the bottom line is this. If we don't prepare astronauts and future space tourists and inhabitants for this reality and take it into account, study it, plan for it, train people for it, we'll be able to be to go very far and be very unhappy. There's a lot of risks. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of benefits if we enable it. 
now we just have to deal with it. <laughs> but it's like, if NASA is listening, I just want to say like, deal with it, NASA. Human are sexual creatures. It's part of, of every aspect almost of our life. So now it's start to build a spacefaring civilization that represents this simple fact. Yeah. And I think, you know, with everything that you've just said there, this is probably a big part of the reason why a lot of these space organizations don't want to deal with sex in relationships in space. It's because there are so many logistical challenges and they may not even know where to start with all of that. And I think you do raise a very good point in terms of saying, well, let's look at just how complicated sex and relationships are here on Earth. And then let's like totally change the environment and then think about how that's going to add further complexity to all of this. I think that's a really good and, and helpful way of thinking about it. And it's true for both the sexual aspect and for the relationship aspect. I mean, you know, you brought up the idea of breakup. So if you start a relationship with somebody in space or on a colony on another planet and then you break up, well, you can't really ghost them the way that you might here on Earth, right? Because you're going to be confined to this limited environment with this small pool of people. So it's going to present a lot of challenges for sex and dating and how we navigate relationships and, you know, what happens when a relationship ends. And I also think you raise that really important point about sexual assault and sexual harassment and what happens when these acts of aggression transpire in these very small environments where you don't have police, you don't have courts, you don't have jail. It could take months or years for help to arrive, right? If an emergency arises or something like that. So it is very logistically challenging in a lot of ways. Now, Unfortunately, we don't really know anything about this because it hasn't been researched. And, you know, NASA says they're not studying it. And, you know, one of the solutions that I've heard proposed for all of this is they say, well, let's just send all same-sex missions into space, right? Because they're like, well, if we just send all women or all men, then no one can get pregnant. And when I, whenever I hear that, to me, it just sort of sounds like a way of, all right, we're just going to take reproduction out of the equation and just pretend like sex and masturbation don't exist and aren't happening. And then we can kind of ignore the issue. So I'm curious for your take on that. What is your thought on these proposals for all same-sex missions into outer space? Yeah, yeah, me too. Each time I hear these uh, this proposition, I'm like, look, you've not done this true. It's one thing if you're sending maybe a crew of four or five individuals for a maybe a relatively short mission, as I mentioned, but if your objective is to settle or a new world, or, I mean, have a long-term space travel to get to someplace very far, the possibilities of having just same-sex, same-sex crews is unrealistic, not only because it kind of creates a situation where you're not dealing with enabling human sexuality in space still, or like, or at least the partnered aspect. Secondly, it's not dealing with the fact that, I mean, LGBTQ individuals also exist. So you might have same-sex crews, but that doesn't prevent some people from being attracted to one another, to building relationships, or just falling in love and then breaking up and all the other problems that this can lead to. It can also just simply create a situation where if for some reason you've selected really your crew based on the fact that they are completely heterosexual zero which let's be honest like when we look at our own surveys and everything we see that everyone is kind of not everyone but there's a significant proportion of the population who is kind of willing also to engage in exploratory behaviors or if really they end up alone for extended period of time might just try to adapt their eroticism to the possibilities of these same sex. So ultimately, even if trying, if you, your, your goal is to try to confine like heterosexual individuals from the same sex and not have sex, I don't think you'll, you'll get the results that you think you'll get. I think people are really good adapting uh, to adapt themselves. Humans are really great at adapting their eroticism and sexuality to difficult contexts. But if by some miracle, you're able to get the perfect crew who is uh, same-sex, heterosexual, not interested in having sex uh, with uh, one another. Yeah, maybe these individuals exist. They surely exist. That's I'm, I'm confident you'd be able to, to find that. I'm not sure that's the way of the future if we want to set all new worlds. And ultimately, if you really try that, what I think will happen is that a lot of people will be miserable. 
you're going to create a lot of psychosocial and psychosexual problems during that space journey. You're going to affect people's mood. You're going to affect crew performance. And then you're ultimately going to affect the mission success. So that chain of event that may happen, I think, is unreasonable, unethical, and untainable in light of our upcoming missions and our objective of uh, space expansion. And I think rather than (laughs) creating this weird situation, you should be, again, deal with it, like enable human intimacy, healthy, safe human intimacy and sexuality in space and try to reap as many benefits as you can from from that. Yeah, I think any other alternative is kind of like a midway point that might be sustainable for short missions, but ultimately will fail as time and environments changes. Yeah, I think it's so true. And I think you also raised that really important point of, well, flexibility and fluidity are inherent parts of human sexuality. And if you look at other contexts here on Earth, where people are very socially isolated and have a very restricted range of potential partners, that we see more of that taking place. So for example, if you look at prison environments, or you look at lockdown environments during a pandemic, right, you see a lot of people who engage in same sex sexual activity, who might not otherwise have done so if they hadn't been put in that very restricted environment in animal species, where for example, you know, I've seen this with turtles, not personally, but I've read research on certain turtle species and certain species of other animals where when the sex ratio is really skewed, where basically your only option, if you're a male is other males, then they start mating with one another, right? So we know that in humans and animals that the options that are presented around you can influence the ways in which your sexuality is expressed. And so I think that's a really important consideration when people raise that idea of all same-sex space crews. That's also not going to obviate the possibility that sexual harassment or assault might occur either, right? So, you know, essentially all the proposals that have been floated are just a way of kind of sweeping sex under the carpet. They're not talking about it. They're ignoring it, putting their head in the sand. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing to call attention to this. And I hope that we do start studying this because there are so many fascinating and important questions. And as we evolve more toward going out and spending more time in space, potentially colonizing other planets, we need to talk about all of these things. So we have much more to discuss, including sex with robots and what we know about that. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Studies show that as many as one in three men say they don't last as long in bed as they'd like to. Fortunately, there's a solution for this, and it's called Promescent. Promescent is a topical spray that boosts sexual stamina through temporary desensitization. Promescent is customizable for your body, and when used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out, and you'll see why thousands of physicians and sexual health providers recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online, and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. And we're back. I'm speaking with sex researcher Simon Dubay. Let's talk about sex robots. So this is another topic you have been actively publishing and speaking on, and it's also extraordinarily controversial. So let's start with that controversy. You have people on one side who are arguing that sex robots are risky and they have the potential to cause widespread harm, but you also have people who argue that they have potential benefits. So what are the potential benefits and what are the potential risks of sex with robots? 
Yeah, saying that these topics is uh, are controversial is really the understatement of the year. It is the issue of sex robot and everything that has to do with sex tech and new artificial partners and virtual environments and these things is extremely polarizing. Rapidly, people either see uh, all the problems and all the risks that could arise and the dangers and there's a lot of fear and technophobia and sexual taboo that are kind of meshed in one another to fuel that are fueled also by sometimes sensationalistic media who want to create that division and on the other end you see a lot of potential applications for health for pleasure, for research, and even for education. So I'd say that if we have to summarize what are the risks, some of the risks that are often brought in the media, but also in scholarly publications, is that sex robots will promote or perpetrate harmful sociosexual norms and behaviors. Uh, They'll generate problematic or even new problematic or pathological behaviors, for instance, being somewhat addictive or compulsively used. When we talk about harmful sociosexual behaviors, we often think about perpetrating toxic patriarchal norms and really being very detrimental to especially self-identified women and girls and children. Some people also say that they will increase the chances of child abuse, so they will impair interhuman relationships that they'll be used to uh, deceive or manipulate humans, and also that they present an important risk to privacy and data confidentiality. On the other end uh, of that very dark uh, spectrum, a lot of researchers think there's a lot of potential benefits, and they argue that sex robots, for instance, and other virtual partners could be used to provide widen access to intimacy and sexuality, be employed in medical and therapeutic treatments, provide uh, more interactive and personalized sex education, prevent child abuse, or the opposite, and as well as reduce risks involved in interhuman sex, be used as standardized research tools and even enable a deeper exploration of human Eroticism. Yeah, I, I think you're really raising the crux of the problem here. Right now, a lot of the discussions, both in scholarly publications and in the media, is not fueled uh, by empirical evidence. For many reasons, first of all, for instance, if we talk solely about sex robot, but also sometimes other virtual environments and virtual partners, at this stage, especially with sex robots, we don't have access to very sophisticated uh, machines that people are, the majority of people might be interested in engaging uh, with. So we're talking more about very old, hyper-realistic, robotic edit dolls that have some form of artificial intelligence that can help them interact with you, recognize what you're saying and respond accordingly, sometimes respond to touch. So we have a very unsophisticated equipment that is still very expensive. So it's kind of unappealing to most individuals. But in the meantime, people are really speculating about what the dangers are and also what the potential benefits are. Now, there is an emerging body of empirical work right now that is mostly focused on trying to understand some basic questions. Who is more or less interested in engaging with these machines? One of the, for now, preliminary evidence that is mostly most consistently replicated is the fact that self-identified men and sometimes males seem to be more interested in engaging erotically or having sex or building intimate relationships with machines compared to self-identified women. But here we're talking about changing numbers also that seem to be influenced by situations like the pandemic, but also over the years as more attention by the media has been brought to these issues, there's also probably this effect of familiarity. So the more we talk about it, the more it becomes not a novel, uh, fear-inducing, first-response-inducing thing that's going on in the event and people kind of have the time to digest it and think about, yeah, maybe I could do some stuff with <laughs> a machine. But ultimately right now, men and sometimes younger men uh, seem to be, we have some evidence that suggests that they might be more interested than women. That being said, usually in both cases, it's a minority of individual. We also like representative surveys. There's a, a few studies by like YouGov and marketing companies that have fairly large samples, around a 1,000 individuals, that would suggest that over the years, starting in 2013, we've moved from 9% of the population saying, yes, they would have sex with a robot, to 
in 2020 more like 22, 20% of individuals in our own surveys, which are obviously uh, limited by self-selection biases and the fact that those who actually participate in sex research sometimes tend to have a more sex positive views. So we find that around maybe 50% of male and 40%, 30% of women, self-identified women would be interested or at least would, would be willing to try a sex robot. And aside from these basic questions of like, would you or would you not engage with uh, machines, there's a body of uh, empirical literature emerging on looking at the underlying mechanisms and or factors, cultural, individuals and state factors that may influence people's motivations. So we're really trying to understand what are the factors that may contribute to people saying, well, yeah, I'd be interested in this and or not. And some of the stuff that we are finding recently is that loneliness may sometimes be a factor, but it's definitely not the main factor that's driving uh, people's intention to engage with these uh, technology. It seems to be more about sexual exploration, sexual diversity, a very an intention to just explore new aspects, enact some fantasies, spice up uh, their relationships. There's also, yes, a small body of individuals who say, yeah, it's because I'm, I have difficulty accessing partners. There's also an important body of the population who say, yeah, actually, I'm not that interested in engaging romantically or sexually with humans. I'd rather have intimate partners. We have older adults who are saying, well, yeah, I, had, I was married for 40 years. Now uh, my husband is dead and it's quite sad, but I'm actually lonely and I, I don't feel like dating. I really don't uh, feel like going out. I'd rather have an artificial partner to meet my sexual needs. And what in our lab we're finding uh, is that one of the main factors when we look at, for instance, personality traits is it seems to be more about the sex than it's about the tech. So it's more about people's attitudes towards sexuality than it seems to be about people's attitudes towards technology. It is a little bit about their attitudes towards technology, but the most predictive factor, for instance, in our findings beyond big five, when we look closer, is really erotophilia, erotophobia, so people's attitudes towards sexual situation or sexuality in general. So also, we there's a couple of findings recently that suggest that more liberal individuals, especially more liberal women compared to more conservative women, might be more interested in sex robot. But right now, one of the big problems with these things and why that study was interesting is the fact that especially what is vehiculated by the media is that these sex robots, they're designed in a very very almost stereotypical representation of uh, femininity and what it could be. And then that is marketed to a certain type of populations. And the media are also kind of reinforcing that loop, which is a problem because if you really deal with the actual companies and what they're receiving in terms of requests by their customers, yeah, there's a little bit of that, but there's high variability, high diversity in what customers, including male and self-identified men, uh, want. But also, we don't speak, these companies or the media don't often speak a lot about the fact that a lot of female and self-identified women and queer individuals or gender non-conforming individuals are interested in these machines. And also that people want machines that represent these alternative form of human eroticism. So there's, I mean, human sexuality lives in marginality consistently. And to some extent, I, I think what the media are conveying does not represent that diversity, which creates in our survey also a situation where maybe a lot of people, if you talk to them in more detail and explain what was possible and what could be, they say, yeah, no, I'm not really interested in engaging romantically or sexually or trying these technology. But ultimately, if you said, oh, well, yeah, maybe we could tailor create this form and potentially create this form of interaction and artificial intelligence that could help you explore certain aspects of your eroticism, then oh, suddenly they're like, yeah, well, actually, I'm, I'm quite interested in that aspect. But it's, it, I think it's also very strategic for these companies to go with what might sell for now, cash in on a certain representation of these machines for now and then move to the next step for a greater production. But even at this stage, an early stage in development, when we talk with the companies, there's a high diversity of requests for what the customers actually want. And these technology, they're highly customizable, so it can meet everyone's intimate and sexual needs. Yeah, so there are a lot of potential risks and a lot of potential benefits, right? And I've read 
countless media articles on this. And, you know, if you talk about the issue of sexual abuse, for example, you have many people who are very vocal in arguing that, well, if you give people a chance to act out very dark or deviant fantasies with a robot, then that's going to increase the odds that they do this in person with an actual human partner. And then on the other hand, you have other people who are saying, no, if you provide a sexual outlet, then that's not going to increase risk of sexual offending. And in fact, it might decrease risk of it, right? So you hear people who are on totally opposite sides of all of this. And you see much more focus on the potential risks and harms and a lot less on the potential benefits. And I like your work in that you do talk about in more detail a lot of these potential benefits. You know, for example, somebody who might be the victim of uh, a certain form of sexual trauma, well, a robotic partner might actually be therapeutic in helping them to overcome that trauma by providing this safer sexual outlet for them in a way to kind of explore and start re-engaging with their sexuality. You know, there can also be potential benefits if you think about, you know, going back to our discussion of space in environments where there are very skewed sex ratios and people don't have access to partners, right? That, you know, these robots could potentially be a sexual outlet for them and provide some sense of meaning in life as well in that they're able to meet their sexual needs or gratify them in some way. And, you know, that could also have applications and, you know, a wide range of environments and also during lockdowns and other things like that, right? So I think when you're talking about sex robots, you really need to give due consideration to the potential harms and risks and the potential benefits. But when you look at what's being said out there, you have a lot of talk, but what do we actually know? You know, is there any research out there that can actually speak to what the effects of human machine interaction sexually are likely to be? Do we actually know anything about it at all? Or is this all just talk? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now, one of the big part of our work is also trying to plan and anticipate the kind of research that we need to be doing, but also the co-evolution of these machines with our intimacy and sexuality. And one thing that is, is clear is that one of the important factors in this phenomenon is agency. It's the agency of machine. It's the capacity for this, the capabilities of these machines to act in or on, in our, or on our world to achieve their own objective. And sustained by the different development of artificial intelligence and the systems and the sensors that we equip these technology and actuators, these robots, but also the virtual partners and virtual environments that we're creating are more and more capable of displaying greater agency. And that agency manifests itself by its ability to interact with you behaviorally, but talk with you, communicate feelings, understand to some extent what you're, uh, you're saying and responding in a meaningful, adapted manner, learning learning from experience and generalizing from these experience is the key also in that process. And I mean, right now, most companies, they definitely understand that actually the sexual component might be very secondary to creating the intimate connection. So they are investing a lot in the development of artificial emotional intelligence. So not only the capacity to display emotion behaviorally and in, through words, and, but also the capacity to recognize your emotions, your emotional state, and respond in an that, in adapted manner that will rapidly create a sense of proximity, of intimacy, of attachment. But to do so, you need to gather a lot of data. You need to gather a lot of data about people's experience, but also about people's interaction. And you need to learn and adapt with these data. So I, I think that's where a lot of people start to feel that there's maybe some danger there because they'll, to do so, they need to learn from multiple users at the same time and gather the data. So that's where also the privacy and confidentiality aspect comes into play. These machines will have access to very sensitive information in, an, in a world where they there's still a lot of sexual taboos and fears and where your sexuality can be weaponized to coerce people into unwanted behaviors or shame you or discredit you, I mean, these data are very important for that aspect, but they're also very important, like what we're seeing with social media companies, they can be used to deceive or manipulate you. 
So we need to be very mindful of these these dynamics because if we take them into account and really account for it, the fact that they are gathering these kind of data can create very interesting emotional relationships that could create feelings of atta- strong feelings of attachment to these machines. They can help you when you're not in a relationship. They can help you be compassionate, more empathize. They can teach you about all kinds of things, about consent, about other relationship with uh, humans. They can alleviate loneliness, but they, they can prepare you for relationship. They can help you become a better lover, a, be- a better listener, a better communicator. They can teach you about sex education in general. If you there's a breakup or something, they can provide companionship while you deal with these uh, emotions. So I think there's a possibility for these machines to learn from you and provide all kinds of interesting information and education and companionship that can improve people's psychological and sexual well-being and health. But that said, to achieve that, (laughs) there's also these challenges of where we need to get there, for instance, of the machine's ability to learn and develop its own erotic agency. And as it does that, how do we deal with the data? and how we also deal with its confidentiality, and how do we keep some kind of control over increasingly agential machine is something that a lot of uh, people fear. And I think it's not without merit that we, as these systems, the sex robots, like the robot, the embodied machines, but also the virtual environments that learn from mass user experience, and also the virtual partners that we can interact with in these environments or augmented partners like avatars and so on, as we disclose and enact our sexuality and eroticism and disclose some very sensitive information about ourselves, we need to tell the companies that are developing, or at least the organization and entities that are governing these, these worlds or these machines and its regulation, we need to hold them accountable to what they're doing with our data, how they're using them, who has access uh, to them, how and how they can be used to influence us, our relationships, our consumer decisions, our political or decisions, every decision that we make, and as well as the time that we spend interacting with them. So we need also to be stop thinking about like also the fact that technology influences us in a unidirectional manner. The, a lot of the discourse in the media and scholarly publications and academic publications have to do with the fact, okay, like technology influence humans or technology is detrimental or technology will allow a utopian human sexuality where everyone can have amazing orgies and sexual fulfilling lives uh, that will meet every possible need. None of that is going, in my opinion, going to happen. There's a very interesting gray area of things that will happen with each individuals in society and cultures and will evolve in time and importantly, will co-evolve in time. So technology, yes, is influencing us, but we are designing technology. We are the one influencing technology and technology that can learn, will learn from us, will learn our own eroticism and through that can help us become better individuals if we design it in a way that favors that path. So this co-construction, co-evolution between us, our eroticism and technology needs to be, the, in my opinion, the dominating way of framing these discourse to have a, a productive scientific agenda that goes beyond just look at all the risks, look at all the benefits. What I'm saying right now is, what do we go from there? What do we do with this technology? Yeah. And I think you raise a lot of really important points there. You know, one is that I was going to ask you about sort of what do sex robots today look like? And, you know, you mentioned that they're kind of like high tech dolls, you know, they're not really like the robots that you might see in media depictions like Ex Machina or Westworld, you know, where you're talking about something very advanced that, you know, looks and interacts and feels very human and very lifelike, you know, it's, it's just sort of a high tech doll to some degree. And they're also very expensive. You know, I was doing a little bit of research before the show and saw that some of these sex robots are going for tens of thousands of dollars, right? So that's not something that's within access or or within the means of much of the population. And so that's going to make them this very fringe, sexual interest and outlet for a very long time until the technology gets much better and becomes much more affordable. But I think you also raised that really important point about, well, what are the robots being produced? 
what do they look like and are they actually meeting consumers needs and what they want and based on the photos i've seen of some of these robots you know they're very porny in terms of their appearance you know they mirror they replicate a lot of the actors and actresses that you might see in pornography and we know that you know there's a lot of porn out there that just doesn't appeal to a lot of people right because you know what people find in porn and whether they're drawn to it and turned on by it really depends on what is available to them and if it doesn't really meet their needs and match their interests then they're going to go and find other outlets for their sexuality so you know i think that's where the people who are making these products really need to do their consumer research to make sure that they're actually meeting people's needs but the other thing that you were talking about is, you know, in terms of the research in this area, we don't really know anything yet about what are the effects of human machine sexual interaction. All we really know is about kind of who's generally more into it than others. And, you know, I've seen in my own research that it replicates what you've been talking about, where if I ask people, have you ever fantasized about sex with a robot? In the survey of 4,175 Americans I did for my book, uh, Tell Me What You Want, I found that only about one in five people had ever fantasized about sex with a robot, and men were much more likely to fantasize about it than women. And I believe gender non-binary and trans folks were also more likely to fantasize about it than self-identified women as well. You know, so there, there are some differences there in terms of gen people's general openness to engaging in this way. But that's kind of like the extent of our knowledge, which is really unfortunate, considering how quickly this technology is developing and advancing. Now, when people talk about sex robots, I think they tend to think mostly about how they provide this sexual outlet. But some robots are being designed to meet intimate needs, needs for connection and companionship. So can you also speak to that a little bit? So to what extent do you think human-machine interaction is going to go beyond sexual gratification and also provide emotional fulfillment? And, you know, that opens up a whole other can of worms in terms of the potential benefits and risks, right? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's a question that often comes up and during interview, but also at conferences. It's consent. And it's a really good question. There's a couple of positions out there. The first one is, let's start with the simple ones. The first, some people say consent doesn't matter. It's a machine. It cannot be harmed. Hence, consent is not necessary with the machine. And often they often even add like a reduce it to like, look, are you asking your dildo to just kind of turn on and turn off? Like it's a machine. It doesn't understand its lines of codes. And the other side of that is some people say, look, we have to include consent with machines that especially anthropomorphic machine or humanoid machine that symbolize or mimic human behaviors and forms, because if we don't, then people will learn from these experiences and it will translate to problematic behaviors or lack of consent and lack of consent like rape or uh, of and other interhuman problematic behaviors okay these are like the two first stands my opinion on this is that for now at, with the level of agency and of foreseeable machines consent is not necessary with the machine but is important in interhuman relationships hence rather than going on one extreme or the other we should try to implement consent models and education to consent models and pleasure and mutual respect within these technology and machines so that they can help educate the population. I'll give you a basic example. The machine during the interaction or conversation prior, doesn't have to be during necessarily the sexual activity, but even during or after, could have regular interaction and discussion about people's sexual preferences, sexual behavior, and including consent, what you like, what you don't like, what you want to do, what you'd like to explore, what you'd be open to to explore, what you don't want to do, what is off limit. And through that, making their user understand that these kinds of discussions are important in interhuman relationships, that the consent with the machine itself is not, is not necessarily essential because at this stage it cannot necessarily be armed, but the, the machine could help people realize that these kinds of discussion in the consent aspect is important in inter, uh, human relationship, hence helping us becoming better intimate partners for our intimate human partners. So how sex robots can become an educational tool that can make us better human partners. Fascinating. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Simon. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right now, you can uh, find me on Twitter, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can also look at my Public Scholar page on the Concordia uh, website. And I also encourage you to participate in our numerous studies that are generally advertised on social media. We have an ongoing one on sexuality and technology and people's attitudes towards sexuality and technology. And eventually, when the pandemic subsides, hopefully, we'll be able also to bring people back into the lab for uh, in-person experiments. But to get these data and get the empirical finding necessary to develop important guidelines and design these technology in a beneficial manner, we need data. So we need you to participate in study and tell us what you think and what you want out of new erotic technologies. So if you want to participate in studies on sex and technology, look for Simon Dubé's work. His last name is spelled D-U-B-E. Thanks again for your time, Simon. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lay Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.